So um, we're going to start in verse 5, and we're going to spend some time uh, in, in just a few verses. I'll, I'll tell you, we're not going to dig into a lot of the stuff in this in these verses, but later this week I'll go live on Facebook um, and I'll, and I'll kind of get into some of the some of the nitty gritty of all of these things that are mentioned here, but we don't have time to get deep into them this morning. But I want to focus on a few things. We're going to start with the Israelite rebellion. It says, though you already know this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. So here he's talking about the Israelites who he had brought up out of Egypt. He rescued them from Egypt, but then he wanted to destroy them. And, and actually the first uh, three verses of Numbers 11 is, is God saying that he's going to destroy the people who are grumbling and complaining. But then we get to this in verse 4 of, of Numbers chapter 11. The rabble with them began to crave other food. So God had been providing the manna, right? The manna every day for them to eat, and they wanted something else. And so the rabble, is how they're described, among them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt and at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we've lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So I thought we'd stop real quick in the middle of this and, and ask, what is the one food you despise? Now, it's pretty clear uh, what food I despise. You all know what one food I despise, and it's mentioned here in this verse, which is why it's fun to bring this up when we're talking about rebellion, because the Israelites were rebelling against God, and what did they want when they rebelled? Onions. I feel very strongly that onions are, are a way that we rebel against God. Onions are, are a, sin, uh, you know, a sign of a sinful heart. And you know, I, I've preached and preached and <laughs> preached about onions in our church, and it just doesn't seem to change anything. Just, just God still has to get a hold of some of the hearts in our church. But one of the foods that I despise is onions. What are, what are some of the foods you despise? Go ahead and, and shout them out. Jim, I know you've got one or two of these, right? Liver. Liver. So imagine the worst combination on earth then is liver and liver onions. Liver and onions. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't get much worse than that. And I remember my mom, who's watching at home on Facebook, making that for us as children growing up. It was, it was horrible. Deviled eggs? Because you're eating the devil. You're beating him, right? You're devouring him. The devil comes to, you know, to devour those, and so you devour him by eating the deviled eggs. Um, so, uh, let's see here. I, I just heard hamburger. Becky Manning said hamburger. My wife says mayonnaise. Sue Smith says rhubarb. Yeah. Dave Drury says plant-based meat. Plant-based <laughs> meat. See, like, how can there be such a thing as plant-based meat? It's plants. It's vegetables. There is no such thing as plant-based meat. Seaweed? Or kiwi? Seaweed. Seaweed. Yeah, seaweed. I mean, it's, it's actually got the word weed in the title. So why would you want to eat seaweed? Doesn't, I mean, have you seen that stuff growing in the ocean? It's just nasty looking, right? So why would you eat that? Same with, uh, same with mushrooms. I don't get how people love mushrooms. It, it's literally a fungus. Yeah. So who loves mushrooms in here? Who, de who despises mushrooms? Okay, so we got more mushroom lovers. 
Uh, so Shauna Jensen uh, loves a, a dinner of liver and onions. <clears throat> My mom, yum, liver and onions. <clears throat> Jolene, olives are awful. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of olives. That's not a, that's not a love olives. My, my daughter doesn't understand me. How could I not like olives? She loves olives. It's one of her favorites. Well, one, once your fingers get too big to stick in the holes, then there's absolutely no reason to enjoy them. <laughs> why, now, why would you eat olives at that point? April says Miracle Whip. Shad just said Spam. Yeah, Spam. I have to confess, I've never actually had Spam. So I don't know what it tastes like. Is it like ham? Is it like a hot dog? It's a reconstituted ham. Reconstituted ham. With salt. With a lot of salt. <laughs> What'd you say, Harper? Eggplant. Eggplant? You don't like eggplant? You despise it? Yes. Hannah, what's your least favorite? Seafood? Any kind of seafood? I like seafood. I don't like sushi. Well, like I really love Brussels sprouts. Who said Brussels sprouts? See, I used to hate Brussels sprouts, and then my wife made them with, uh, with chopped up ham and brown sugar, and they're delicious that way. Good, good food. Well, George, George H.W. Bush uh, hates Brussels sprouts. That's the first President Bush. And he says, I'm president. I don't have to eat it if I don't want to. <laughs> Bruce Smith also hates Brussels sprouts. Yeah, yeah. Um, Shauna dislikes very much tofu. Yeah, yeah it's a gross one too. Yeah, why, why, would we, why would we do that to ourselves? I don't know. Jolene can't get the vomit emoji to work, so. I was given, I was given a tofu smoothie once. A tofu smoothie? Yeah. What in the world is I a had tofu about one smoothie? That was it. Yeah, that's disgusting. Yeah, so we, I mean, there are some foods that we despise, right? Well, the, uh, the Israelites... The Israelites despised manna, manna, Blech. and the word, the word for manna literally means, what is it, <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're eating it? What is it? What is the stuff that we're eating? We don't know, we don't know what it is. It's like tofu, like, you know, why are we eating this stuff? We don't know what it is. But, um, so, this is, and this is the example, most likely, or at least a part of this, although when you talk about the Israelites' rebellion, um, there's a lot that goes into the Israelites' rebellion. So it's not just you know, you know, when they're complaining about uh, the foods that they don't like, although what, in the context of what Jude is talking about in here 5 through 16, this is probably most likely what he has in mind when he's talking about uh, this issue. The rabble that, that began to crave other food. And, and what was the problem with craving other food? I mean, what, is, it, is it really a sinful thing for us to, to crave something, you know, is that really a big deal? Uh, we'll get back to that in just a second. Um, what's the problem? You know, so wrestle with that as, as we think for just a minute. What's the, what's the problem with wanting something else? Especially in the, in the Israelites' case. I mean, you could imagine being, the, I mean, eating the same thing every meal of every day for 30 or 40 days. It would, at some point you would say, yeah, I would like to taste something else also. I would like to eat something different. But then later he uses, he uses this phrase, and he's talking about, remember we, last week we were talking about false teachers that, that had gotten into uh, their community, 
and we were using this, this wonderfully delicious water, dirty water, dandelion water, to talk about how, how easy it is to kind of sneak, sneak a lion at first. You don't really notice it, but then over time, the more it gets added, the, the more difficult it is to get it out. And, and we said last week that it's, it's easier to keep it out than it is to get it out. And we illustrated that with the Brita. It just takes a lot of work, a lot of filtering to get something out. And you have to add in a lot of pure water, which we didn't do last week to, to help illustrate that. But but these, these are people that pollute their own bodies, is what Jude says. And he's talking about these teachers who had come in and brought in this false teaching. And, and they were polluting their own bodies. I'm not going to get into the, the depth of what he's talking about there. But you can imagine how with some of the licentiousness, you could be polluting your own bodies. You know, maybe, maybe even talking about uh, diseases that are transmitted when you're doing that kind of a thing. But, but they pollute their own bodies, they, they reject authority, and they heap abuse on celestial beings. That's verse 8. Now, later this week when, when I go live, I'll, I'll explain a little bit more uh, about the idea of heaping abuse on celestial beings, but we don't have time to get into that this morning. But I want to jump down to verse 11. So if you've got your Bibles open, you might actually want to underline verse 11. Because Jude summarizes three things here, and there's some points we can draw from them. So he says, woe to them. Woe to them. They have taken the way of Cain. So there's number one, illustration number one. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. So the way of Cain, number one, Balaam's error, number two. And then the third thing is they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Now, really quickly, let me ask, and uh, I'll get some feedback, but what, what, was, what was the way of Cain? What did Cain, what's Cain famous for doing? Killing his brother, right? He, he murdered his brother. So that, that's what Cain did. All right, so how about Balaam's error? We just talked about this a few weeks ago. What was Balaam's error? Can anyone remember? Yeah. Right, yeah, good. So Balaam's error, he, you know, the, the, he was a Gentile prophet and a king came to him, wanted Balaam to curse the Israelites, but he wouldn't do it. He ended up blessing the Israelites seven times because God, that's what God gave him to do. But he still, we learned from Revelation chapter 2, he still found a way to, uh, to help the king out. And what he did was he actually got them to, uh, to the, the foreign government to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. So that was what Balaam did. Yeah, yeah, Becky, was, he, was, he beat his donkey. That was one of the things that he did. Uh, but but he, he essentially gave the enemy a way to come in behind the, you know, behind the walls of Israel and, and defeat themselves from the inside. And then Korah's rebellion. What, 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 what was Korah's rebellion? Anyone know what that was? Jim, what was Korah's rebellion? They felt that they had just as much right to be a priest as, as Aaron and his family, even though God had specifically chosen Aaron. And, and what did they do when they felt like they had the right to be, to be priests that way? They, they 
rebelled and said, why shouldn't we be priests? I haven't looked up the right. details. But. Well, they, they came against Moses. They rose up against Moses. And Korah, who was in the line of the Levites, felt like he and his family at least had a right to that, that uh, position. And so they were jealous of the fact that, that God had chosen Aaron to be uh, the high priest, even though it was his cousin, I don't know how to say this, Elitzaphan, E-L-I-T-Z-A-F-A-N, Elitzaphan, who had been chosen as the head of the Levite family to which Korah belonged and probably should have received the position from their vantage point. So because they felt like they had been wronged and they had a right to the high priesthood, this led him, Korah, along with Dathan and Abiram and 250 other community leaders to stage a full-blown rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Anyone know what happened uh, when, they, when they tried to tried to rebel and, uh, and God came against them. What? Smoted? Smoted? Yeah. Yeah, the, the earth opened up and swallowed them. And so that's an interesting one we'll, we'll talk a little bit about later this week. Um, is because it doesn't say, like, there, there, it isn't clear that, that God said that he was going to open up the earth. That's just what came out of Moses' mouth, and then that's what happened. So, so you know, that's an interesting thing that we could talk about. But really, what, what's happening here, what Jude is focusing on, is, is rebellion against God's ways. Right? Rebellion against God's desires. Rebellion against what God wanted to happen. Right? So with Cain, it was rebellion... You know, that, so Cain didn't um, offer as good of a sacrifice as his brother, and so he felt bad about it. And, and God replied to that by saying, you could, you know, uh, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And it was after God told Cain that, that Cain went out and murdered his brother. So Cain had the opportunity to make things right and do things according to God's plan. God was not being harsh against Cain. He was trying to lead him in the way that was right. But Cain didn't want to do that, so he lured his brother out into a field and murdered him. It's the same thing with Balaam. Balaam had all this opportunity to do what was right. He, he could have not gone with the king in the first place, and he could have stayed at home. He, he could have just stopped that blessing the Israelites like God had given him to do, but he had to go further and go against God's wishes and God's plan, what God determined to be right, and he gave the enemy a way to destroy the Israelites from within. And the same thing with Korah. You know, Aaron had been chosen by God. Moses and Aaron had been chosen by God for these roles that they were in. And Korah decided, well, I, I, I want to have a say in it. I want to decide. I want to be able to determine you know, who, who has the power and who has the authority. In fact, one of the things that he says is he feels like all the Israelite community should be able to be priests. So why are you setting just one person aside to be high priest? Why isn't this an option for everyone? So these are the examples that Jude is using to, to illustrate the kind of people that had infiltrated their Christian community and what they were doing. So, so the lies were not, were not just little white lies, you know, where, where someone might come in, but they're actually, 
They're, they're deep lies that are rooted in the dysfunction of humanity, which is rebellion. Rebellion is, is the problem with all of humanity. We, we don't want to do things God's way. We want to do things our way. We want to go the direction we feel like going. And if anyone is going to try to lead us any way other than the way that we think is the right way to go, look out. And then Jude goes on, and, and as he's, he's making this point, he just, he just kind of makes it worse and worse. He says, these people are blemishes at your love feasts. Eating with, the, out you, eating with you without the slightest qualm. They're, they're shepherds who only feed themselves. The shepherd's responsibility is to take care of the sheep and feed the sheep, but they're feeding only themselves. They're, they're clouds without rain. Well, you, see, you see the promise of something. It looks like a good thing that's happening, but then it's empty in what it provides. They're blown along by the wind. They're autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They're wild waves of the sea foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest darkness has been reserved forever. By the way, a quick explanation, wandering stars, uh, that's an idea to talk about, you know, you know, probably planets that they would see in the night sky when they're looking, and there would be stars that seem to go out of order from the rest of the rotation of the stars. All the stars in the sky would kind of follow the same pattern, but then there'd be a few stars that seem to go against the rest of that order, and that's what a wandering star, it's, it's a a star that seems to be rebelling or going against the plan that has been laid out for it. Within verse 16 it says, these people, these people, the ones who are, have chosen the way of Cain, rushed for profit into Balaam's error, like Balaam made money off of this destroying the Israelites, destroyed in court, they have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people the people who have brought in the false teaching, the people who have brought in the licentiousness, and that, that you can do whatever you want, and it's okay because we have grace and God is going to forgive you. So, you know, just embrace whatever kind of lifestyle you choose. These people, the ones who are bringing this teaching, they are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. So, so back to the question about, about, the, uh, about the manna. Like, why was it such a bad thing for the Israelites to want something else? Because it's following their own desire, right? It's, it's our own desire. That, you know, in Scripture, you know, our, our stomach is often an example, an illustration of our human desires that actually lead us astray, that cause us to go against God's plan for our lives. Our, our, our appetite, our, our hunger is oftentimes what, what leads us to do things that we shouldn't do. And, and it's our, our physical hunger, but it's not just our physical hunger, but our physical bodies uh, actually like other things. He says that in verse 10, these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. So these teachers that we're listening to, these people who are grumblers and fault finders that, that have gotten into the midst of the church and are leading the church astray, these are people who are listening only to their basest human instincts and being driven by those instincts alone. So this is why the rebellion is such a big part of what Jude is talking about, because God has a way that's better than us. And as we read, I think, in the book of Proverbs, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. Our way 
seems right to us in the moment. Following our desires in the moment seems like right because it's, it's just what feels so good. It feels so right in the moment, but in the end, it leads to death. So the problem with the manna is that God's plan to provide for the Israelites was manna. It had what they needed, had what they needed in that moment. It was providing for them exactly what they needed. And so to, to beg and whine and complain for something else is to say, God, I don't trust you that you're actually providing for me in this moment what I need. And that's where the heart issue of the desires following our base desires starts to creep up because we just don't really trust God. We don't trust that, that he's got our best interests at heart and at mind, that, that, he's, that he, he's really just trying to control us and manipulate us and force us to do what, we, what he wants us to do. He's not listening to us and what we really want and the joy we think we deserve in life. He's not listening to our, to our desires and our cry for our desires to be fulfilled and met. He, he's just trying to control us and keep his thumb on us and, and push us down and force us into his way. But, but if you read the whole story of scripture, you see that his way is where we thrive. His way is where we find joy and happiness and peace and love and all the things that we want and we're looking for in all the wrong places. So our rebellion is leading us to follow the wrong voices. So I want to ask a couple questions as we start to wrap up. Are you, are you a grumbler and a fault finder? I used to be. I, I've shared, I've shared my, my story on this. And to be honest, it still comes out plenty of times, and I wish it wasn't there. But I used to think that it made me sound smart to grumble. I, I thought it made me sound smart to, to complain, to be able to find fault in something, to be able to look at something and say, here's the problem. Has anyone noticed this problem? But really, it just, it just makes me sound like a jerk. It just makes me sound like, like I'm that guy that's able to you know, find, find the flaw in the sunset or the sunrise. Like this morning, you know, I, I almost took a picture of the sunrise because the sun was coming up and, and it was just shooting you know, the rays out behind the clouds like you see in a lot of pictures. But, but I didn't take the picture because you know, I was at a gas station and it wasn't, you know, the, the foreground wasn't nearly as pretty as the background. And so I didn't take the picture. Finding, finding flaws in something is not a skill. That's uh, not something that we should desire. Finding problems in everything is not, is not a good thing. And, and I hear this, I, I not only hear, not only do I hear you know, the grumbling and fault finding, being able to look and say that I, I, see, you know, I see a problem in this, I see a flaw in this, I see, I see something wrong in this, but, but I've also heard the start to say, you know, to creep in with the phrase, well, well I just think. And then we fill in the blank. Well, I just think, and then, and then we say that this thing is a really important thing to me. Like, for example, I just think it's too hot right now. I, I, just, think, I just think that anything over 85 degrees is just too hot. And I think it's, it's perfectly reasonable for me to say that, that anything over 85, I just, I just think that, and so I just think, and then we start to complain, right? We, we use that phrase, well, I just think, as some, some kind of, almost, you know, omnipotent, omniscient, pre-qualifier to what we're about to say as though, well, I just think, and then 
what I'm about to say is, is really, you can't argue with it. And I think it comes from, especially here in the Northwest, but our entire country, we're, we're idealists. In fact, I've, I've received some criticism over the years for being an idealist. You know, there's, there's an ideal way things should be, like there's an ideal way our society should be functioning right now. There's an ideal way church should operate and function. And, and we feel like that's, that's, a, that's not a bad thing. What's, what's so bad about, about being an idealist? It may not be so bad. It may not be so bad to, to have an ideal that, that we think we're driving for and shooting for and looking out for. But, but, when, but when the ideal starts to overtake everything and starts to drive wedges between people, then it becomes dangerous. Right, like the, the pictures that, that Timothy was showing me, if we, like the first picture where it was fall in the background and the car crash in the front, you know, you know, we could look at that and say, well, that picture is about the car wreck. Uh, no, no, then you can have another, that, that picture is about the fall and, and it's just, you know, bad things happen in every season of life, but we can still find the good, good in it if we're looking for it. It's just, and, and we say, well, the ideal of that picture is one or the other, and then we're going to let that drive a wedge between us because we think it's about this or about that. Our ideals, I think, from my observation, lead us to become grumblers and fault finders. I think our ideals of how we think the world is supposed to work, how the world is supposed to function and operate, our ideals can, can lead us to start to looking at everything else through the lens of that ideal and evaluating everything else criticizing everything else. And here's, a, here's the problem, is that when we let one ideal become the driving force behind every decision, we don't just have an ideal, we have an idol. When we let one ideal become the driving force behind every decision, we don't just have an ideal, we have an idol. Right? You can see this, you can see this in the Israelite community that, that, that we want something besides manna and that ideal, this ideal of what it was like back in Egypt. It's just, it was so good. I mean, life was so good back in Egypt that we, I mean, we had meat to eat. We, we remember the fish and, and the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. I mean, that was, that's the ideal. That's how it should be. We shouldn't be wandering out here in the desert eating manna every single day. And when you have that ideal and it becomes a driving force behind everything, it leads us to rebellion against God's design. When we think our ideal is the most important thing. I think this is at least a part of what's happening so much in the world right now is that we have thousands of ideals. Not just ideas, but ideal, like this is the ideal way life should be. And we're holding these ideals as the most important thing in the world right now. And we are willing to throw everything else out in the pursuit of this ideal. And don't you dare get in the way of me pursuing this ideal. And don't you dare get in the way of our country going in the direction of this ideal. And don't you dare get in the way of our church going in the direction of this ideal. This is how it's supposed to be. This is the most important thing for us in this moment. When we have an ideal that becomes a driving force, we don't just have an ideal, we have an idol. We have something 
that is more important to us than God himself. That's what the Israelites did. That's what Balaam was doing. That's what Korah was doing. That's what Cain decided. It's just, this is more important to me than following you, God. So there are very few things that are, that are really actually make or break issues for us. The funny thing is, I have a list here, and I bet we could even in this room get into an argument about things that should and should not be on this list. And people watching at home could be watching at home saying, well, that, that's, that's not a complete list. That, those aren't the most important things. Now, I, I, would, I could probably argue that there are probably some things we could simplify about this list and, and do away with to make things even more clear about what are the most important things. But I would challenge you as I, as I go through this list of what the most important things are, if you start to see that there's something that needs, that you think just absolutely has to be on that list, Maybe that's an ideal that's starting to become an idol. So what are these core things? It's the gospel. The gospel, which we're going to do a series on here in a few weeks. The gospel is creation by one God and three persons, rebellion, justification, redemption, sanctification, and resurrection. That's the gospel, that God created the world and, and, and the way everything should work. One God and three persons, the actual physical creation seems to have been done by Jesus. But God and three persons created everything, then mankind rebelled against God's way. We decided to do things our own way. For the next 1,500 or so years, we continue to rebel against God and to fight against him until, until finally God sends his son, Jesus Christ, to justify us, to, to make things right, to die in our place because we had rebelled against God. Jesus had to come and make things right. And because of the opportunity through Jesus, now we have the ability to be redeemed in Christ. That redemption then makes it possible for the Holy Spirit to sanctify us, which is a big church word for, for making us holy, set apart, doing something for God alone. Our lives reflect God alone. And then the resurrection, the resurrection of our spiritual life in the here and now and the, the permanent resurrection of all believers in eternity and, and God's paradise when he restores all things. That's the, that's the gospel. Part of that is that Jesus' death on the cross is the only sacrifice that could remove the penalty of my sin. And that it's only those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior who receive God's free gift of eternal salvation. That's a part of the gospel. But again, that's the gospel that, that is the thing. The second thing would be disciple-making, that, that, that God gave us through Jesus a message of, of, of disciple-making, going to all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you to the very end of the age. God has given us that mission as his followers. It's what the gospel allows us to do. The gospel allows us to join in with God on his mission. The Bible. We, we believe that the Bible is the highest authority for what I believe, that God speaks to us through his word, and that 90 per, at least 95% of what we need to follow Jesus Christ on this earth and do his will and his way is found in the Bible. It's the highest authority. 
for what I believe. The Holy Spirit indwells Christians to enable them to live a godly life. That is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit inside the believer that makes it possible for us to live a godly life. We cannot do this in our own strength. If we could have done it in our own strength, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to come. So the Holy Spirit is an incredibly important part of that. But I could probably put that into the gospel and kind of and, and simplify this list a little bit. And this last one, one that Jesus said was extremely important. It's so important that it was a major focus of his teaching the night before he was crucified was love and the spiritual unity of all believers through Jesus. John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, Jesus told us, he gave us the command that summarized the new covenant, covenant to, to love one another in the same way that he was about to love us by dying on the cross for us. We were supposed to love one another with that same kind of sacrificial love. And then verse 35, it says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, the way that you love one another. And then when he was praying, a major focus of his prayer in the garden of Gethsemane was that we would be one just as Father, Son, and Spirit are one, that we, the followers of Jesus Christ, would be one. Perfect unity, perfect unison of believers in love through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. These, these are, are the core issues for us as Christ followers. Notice there's nothing political about any of that. There's, there's nothing really that should be divisive about any of that, although people who are living in rebellion will resist it. But this is what we're supposed to be unified around, the gospel. This is that core message that has been entrusted to us, like Jude said at the beginning of his letter. It was entrusted to us, and it doesn't change. This is the core message of the gospel that was given to us, and this is what has started to get, get polluted. And, and people have come in from the outside and say, no, this is the most important thing. You need to change this. You need to twist that. You need to adjust that. And I have this personal desire that's really important to me. And you need to find a way within Scripture to accommodate that. And if you can't find it, then you need to start to twist Scripture to accommodate that so that I can feel good about myself because I need to have this desire, this, this physical urge that I have. This has to, it's so important to me, I cannot give it up. And so you're going to have to find a way to accommodate that. And we use that excuse over and over and over and over again. To go our own way. So I have two questions that I want to ask as we wrap up. First, are we letting grumblers and fault finders drive our lives? Are we letting grumblers and fault finders, fault finders come in from the outside and slowly pollute with, with their ideas the gospel and the core message of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Are, are we letting grumblers and fault finders you know, dictate how we live our lives outside of, outside of our gathering together on Sunday mornings? Are we letting grumblers and fault finders, those, those who are following their most basic physical urges, are we allowing them to, to have incredible influence and control in our way of thinking, so much so that we're driving wedges between us and other people, and even worse, between us and other believers? Are we letting grumblers and fault finders drive our lives? And the second harder question is, are we being grumblers and fault finders? I know it's hard right now. 
There's a lot going on in the world that, that, that it's easy to find fault with. But are we going to be fault finders and grumblers and complainers who whine about God not, God not giving us what we want and things not being the way we think they should be in life right now? Or are we going to trust God that even in the midst of very difficult things, he's got an incredible plan for us, for his church, and for his mission? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I just, I recognize that where we are right now, that we've come through yet another divisive week, uh, another week that would seek to drive wedges between a lot of people, another week that would seek to shout, this is the most important thing. And we know that the spiritual opposition to your kingdom would have us get distracted with that. That, that the spiritual war that we're in right now and have been for thousands of years and will be in until you return and make things, all, make things how they're supposed to be, how you desired them to be from the beginning, that until that time we're going to be at this spiritual war, that there's always going to be a liar amongst us who seeks to sneak in and poison the well with just with little bits of mistruths, misdeeds, false truths, little just side shifts of one degree after another to get us off course from what your truth actually is. But I pray, Father, for us in this room and watching online that, that we would be so committed, so sold out, so absolutely dedicated to your truth, to following your plan for our lives, that, that we refuse to allow any of these other polluters to come in and sneak in and water down what it is you've given us to do. I pray, Father, that we'd be sold out, dedicated, committed to the gospel, that, that we would not allow ourselves to be distracted from that by anything that would come along, that, that we would not let any issue creep in, that, that we would be committed to making disciples and going out and making disciples of all nations, that we wouldn't be afraid even when it's hard, that we would commit our lives to, to studying your word that you've given to us for the, for the Christ-like life, and that we would let that be the ultimate authority in the way that we live our lives, that, that we would seek to be full of the Holy Spirit and let the Spirit dwell deeply within us to enable us to live this godly life, and that we as your children would be completely unified by the blood of Christ in a unconditional love kind of way, that we would never allow ourselves to be divided or driven off because of a ideal that creeps in, but that we would be completely unified by the love of Christ at all times. With members of our church and with other believers, Father, help us to be that kind of person. And if we've fallen short, we know there's grace for that. And Father, help us to not use that grace as an excuse or a license to sin. But to receive that grace and allow that grace to lead us in a new way. The way that you've given us to live our lives. The way that goes in accordance with your word. To turn away from that in thinking and in action. Go your way. Jesus' name.